I always love teaching in this Dhamma hall. It's so infused with beauty and Dhamma and yeah, yeah. If the talk's really boring, you just have a fun time looking at the, you know, all these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and raining down blessings on you. So it's a kind of a win-win. So um, just to fill in a little bit about my background, because it relates to the talk. So, um, so I've been teaching uh, the Dharma for about twenty plus years, and um, based at Spirit Rock, and um, and then, uh, as was mentioned, I founded an institute called the Mindfulness Institute. Um, maybe about five years after I'd started teaching, and I did that because what I quickly realized was that um, most people uh, were not going to go into a Buddhist retreat center, monastery, temple, and go on retreat for a week or a month or whatever, um, and would feel quite intimidated coming into a place like this because of the, you know, the cultural and religious um, associations. And so um, the purpose of that institute was to take these beautiful, profound wisdom teachings of mindfulness and wisdom and compassion and in a way kind of translate them uh, into uh, non-Buddhist environments in healthcare and education and uh, in organizations and business and prisons and so I spent the last 10, 15 years teaching in a lot of different settings, both in a lot of um, Buddhist centers, Dharma centers on retreats, um, and but also uh, teaching in a lot of different uh, settings. And uh, have been very um, uh, sort of in the midst of how mindfulness has grown from the cloister of the Buddhist world for the most part, and uh, really mushroomed into every facet of society, education, healthcare, government, business, NGOs, the justice system, um, you name it, lawyers, um, uh, to a kind of remarkable degree. I, I wouldn't ever have guessed 20 years ago, and I know some of you have been practicing it for a long time, that mindfulness would sort of become hip <laughs> and vogue and the latest thing to study in psychology and neuroscience and business and to be a key factor in uh, leadership and in uh, resilience and stress management and uh, dealing with um, anxiety and depression and PTSD and uh, apply to people coming back from combat, and um, uh, you know the the reach has is kind of amazing, actually, uh, in a very short space of time. Probably in the last ten, ten years, ten to fifteen years, um, that it's really exploded. And like when anything grows that quickly, um, it has its pros and its cons. And so the benefits is that, you know, tens of millions of people are now having access to these teachings that 20 years ago 
was probably a few hundred thousand people, maybe. I don't know what the numbers are really, but it's it's huge. It's in the tens of millions, if not more. Um, the challenge with that is when something grows quickly, it tends to get simplified. It tends to get um, uh, a lot of hype around it and commodified. And uh, from my perspective, the depth and the context of the scope of mindfulness practice in its original context uh, that the Buddha spoke has been, is being significantly uh, occluded or lost in that uh, mindfulness is often reduced to attention or to focus and the, the depth of, of it as a liberating practice of understanding of insight of freedom is um, not often uh, included in how it's presented. And in some ways that's okay because when you're teaching to mindfulness to kindergarten kids, um, which is happening, um, or to extremely, extremely stressed and traumatized youth in juvenile hall, they're wanting some simple techniques how to pay attention, how to be present, how to manage the intensity of emotion, etc. So there's a certain kind of, you know, even as the Buddha spoke to, like speak in, speak to the idiom of the people that they can understand. So there's a kind of a cultural uh, appropriateness in how these teachings are presented, uh, say, in a boardroom or in a um, uh, in a mental health clinic to, say, in, in a Dharma setting like this. And, and that's one of the skills of, a teacher is, is to learn how to, you know, meet that, you know, to really meet what's needed. Anyhow, so I decided to write this book, From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness, uh, in response to what I saw, feel, was a dumbing down of mindfulness and a oversimplification and wanting to speak to um, a mainstream audience about these teachings but really speak to the depth, range, scope, and breadth of the practices. So, um, and I thought I had a, 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 a particular perspective given I'm both got, you know, deeply embedded in the Dharma tradition and, but also, um, have a lot of experience in all these different ways that mindfulness, uh, is being taught. And I've taught to the UN in, in Senegal and Africa and, you know, in tech companies and in schools and, um, the same prisons and, um, so, you know, really seen that, um, in all of these different places that mindfulness is taught, it's, tr- it's amazing. It's bringing tremendous value. However simple it's being taught because these practices have inherent value and, and power in them. You know, when you give someone the gift of mindfulness, of awareness, that's a tool that just can continue to flourish, as you might know from your own practice. Think about your life before you had any mindful awareness practice. I know mine was kind of a mess. <laughs> I, was, I was looking at some old photos recently. I was a punk rocker in London. I was kind of a wild child. I had a white mohawk and earring, big, you know, made my own clothes, and but was a mess in certain ways. Angry, confused. And, um, and suffering a lot. And then I found these teachings that really give us the, the keys to understand our own mind and heart and suffering 
and it was radical. And I completely dropped out of my life and shaved my mohawk off and moved into a sort of a monastery like this and then went to Asia and studied for the next 15 years intensively. Um, so, so we're, you know, we're very blessed in a way. In a, at the fact that you're here is a blessing. Right? The fact that you have access to these tools, which are really profound, simple, accessible, available. Of course, if we practice them, you might have a great Buddhist bookshelf, but whether you actually practice this stuff, <laughs> that's another matter. So, so the Buddha in his teaching, as you'm sure you know, was oriented around, he said, one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. It's actually two things, but anyhow, we're splitting here. Suffering and the end of suffering. Right? And how do we, how do we understand, how do we understand this human predicament? How do we free ourselves from suffering? Well, we begin by looking, by paying attention. We cultivate mindfulness. We cultivate this jewel of awareness. And so in the, the Satipatthana, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, right, we talked about exploring ourselves, understanding the body, understanding the heart and the mind, understanding the nature of our experience, understanding reactivity and non-reactivity, understanding how to find peace in the midst of this changing, uncertain life. And so the, my book sort of covers those areas to, to a sort of, not, not totally maps onto the four foundations, but closely explore the mindfulness of the body, the mind, the heart, and the world, living in the world. What's interesting about the times we're living, it's a little sort of, I think, I think we're a little post-peak hype from mindfulness. There was a few years, a few years ago, I think it was every day or every week I was seeing some new research postulating how great mindfulness is for sleep or for uh, ADD or for weight loss or for, you know, and it was, it was sort of touted as the panacea for all ills, internal and external. And then more recently we've had some backlash to that. We've had the mindfulness argument, some of you may be privy to, which was, um, sort of the critique of mindfulness becoming commodified, like McDonald's and being sold on the marketplace, mindfulness. Um, and then we've had the backlash of um, challenging some of that um, hype around mindfulness as the cure to all things, because it also can stimulate uh, difficulty and uh, trauma and other things that, um, you know, when we go deep into retreat, can surface all kinds of things that are not actually so easy to be with. But for the most part, um, there's a, there has been a fair amount of hype, which is partly what I was responding to. There was an article that came out called How to Make a Killing on Wall Street with Mindfulness. I was like, I wonder what the Buddha would think about that. <laughs> okay, you monks and nuns, you have meditated, now go make a killing. Thus have you heard. <laughs> I was in a store one day and I was looking for tea and there was a box of peppermint tea in it and in the, on the box it said peppermint tea mindful tea and I thought what has peppermint got to do with mindfulness <laughs> nothing except you can drink it mindfully that's that's workable but the f- selling it as mindful tea is just you know hype so 
And what's interesting about these teachings, as you know from your own practice, that mindfulness, far from being a panacea to our ills, is actually a radical confrontation with those very ills, a radical confrontation with life, with uncertainty, with mystery, with transience, with dukkha, with suffering. We turn towards the immediacy of our experience, and the reason you're here and come here is probably because you're not blissing out floating on clouds every day through the week. Because you're you know, working like every human being with the challenge of being human, being in a body, being in relationship, aging, dealing with uncertainty in our times, ecologically, politically, or otherwise. And so mindfulness actually, far from retreating from and curing those, actually has us directly look and meet that with awareness, with presence, with curiosity, We cultivate awareness in service of what? Not as an end in itself. And one of my um, sort of thrusts in the book is to really point to we cultivate mindfulness for why? To develop understanding, to develop clarity, to develop insight, to develop knowing. Knowing of what? Knowing how we suffer, knowing how we stress, knowing how we add burden onto our already challenging life by our reactivity, by our views, by our judgments, by our avoidance, by all the different ways that we uh, make our predicament harder. So I'm going to read a few things from the book. This is from a student um, who speaks a little to this, uh, the sort of what mindfulness is rather than what it's hyped to be. And she says, Like many others, I've had very challenging moments with a difficult divorce, being a single mom, and also having a strong idealistic tendency to think I could somehow find a perfect state of happiness. Over the years, I tried a variety of spiritual practices and teachers, but nothing really seemed to help me cope with my patterns of reactivity which still played out and brought me deep frustration and unhappiness. When I discovered mindfulness practice, it seemed as though I'd finally found something that did not set me up to search for some ideal state. Instead, it showed me a depth of awareness in which I could be kind, happy, and at ease in my ordinary life under any circumstance. Therein lies the peace and happiness I longed for all my life. The pain of the divorce didn't magically disappear, Neither did the challenges of being a single parent. However, mindfulness did give me the capacity to be present, accepting, and patient with whatever life threw at me. This has been an invaluable gift. So I think she describes that perfectly. It didn't make the challenge of being a single parent or whatever stuff she was going through, but it gives us profound resources, clarity, understanding from which we can navigate these these, these inevitable life circumstances with a little more wisdom, a little more skillfulness, a little more presence, a little more patience, a little more equanimity. Maybe you can reflect on your own experience, right? Hasn't made the the stuff of your life go away, right? Relationships are relationships and bodies are bodies and political circuses are political circuses. But we can, you know, whether we suffer in relationship to those, 
That is the freedom that mindfulness practice can provide. I feel like I'm just telling you everything you know. So um, this is really just, you know, Dharma teachings are mostly reminding us of what we know and we forget. Or we don't, or we just get, not so much we forget, it just goes on the back burner. And then we hear a teaching that, all right, I know this. I know this. I've heard it 50 times. Right. Okay. So here we are. So I'm telling myself as much as I'm sharing this with you. So for a question for you, not, you don't need to answer this, but what is mindfulness practice for you? Is it a practice of liberation? Is it a simply a tool of self-awareness? Is it a practice of helping you manage and self-regulate your turbulent emotions? Is it a path of insight and introspection? Does it encompass all of your life or is it just mostly on your cushion? So what's the intention behind the practice? Where is it lived and applied? And what is the fruit? What is the influence of that practice? And again, there's no right answers, and we, we, we orient to these practices in different ways at different times. And we might come to the practice because all we want is a little peace of mind. We want our mind to shut up. We want a little bit of peace and quiet and a little respite from just the stress of life. Great. That's a really fine intention. And as we do that, we may begin to notice other things that the practice can provide of more, of, of more wisdom or depth or insight or understanding. So these teachings, the Buddha started with the body. This foundation of mindfulness, this foundation of awareness, the body being such a profound vehicle for, for understanding, for insight, for to, to abide in presence. The, the Buddha talked about abiding in awareness, abiding in mindfulness. In the body. And the body's in the present. Right now, as you're listening, what is, the, what is your awareness of your body? What is your body sensing, feeling like, telling you, teaching you, needing, wanting? And I've really, I've really appreciated these 35 years of this practice of how much the practice orients us to being really embodied, to being in this body as we live and breathe and walk and talk and do whatever we do. And the body can, can be a refuge, a refuge for, for awareness, for grounding, for centeredness, right? in the midst of a turbulent life. And the Buddha said, Everything we need to learn can be understood in this fathom-long body. Right? The body is a profound teacher, particularly when we think it's not going right, <laughs> like it's aging, or it's sick, or we get injured, or we get fatigue. I went through a long phase of chronic fatigue. That was a profound teacher. I, I literally didn't have enough energy to get out of bed in the morning to go to the kitchen. I had to really listen to how to navigate life when there's no energy. Or having chronic pain. I have a fair amount of chronic pain. It's a profound teacher. 
as a student on my last, uh, so I run, I run various teacher trainings. I run a, a meditation and nature teacher training, which I'm starting this Saturday, and Beth's going to be joining us for that. Um, it's a year-long training, and there was a student there last year, and she had a particular diagnosis, I forget the name, where every single joint was ragingly painful. And every movement, every movement, including lying still, was painful. And to watch her move and walk, knowing that, and I'd walk behind her sometimes, was just, it was like walking behind the Buddha. She was so present and also so kind and so patient with her body. It was beautiful. And, and she said the practice saved her. I mean, it literally felt like she, it saved her life. Because she learned how to not fight the pain, not try to get rid of it, which is impossible in her case, but actually meet it with a kind awareness, with a patient, steady presence. And of course, it doesn't make the pain go away, but it gave her resources, capacity to hold it, which was liberating. And she's now teaching, and she's, for me, a profound teacher in how we meet, how we meet life when we're up against our edge. And pain, by its definition, puts us up against our edge. So, so we practice being mindful of our bodies, inhabiting our bodies, meeting our sensory experience as a profound training. Because, you know, there's beautiful things happen in the body. There's joy, there's pleasure, there's delight, there's vitality, there's energy, there's ecstasy, there's all kinds of things. And there's also pain and hunger and, and, uh, achiness and exhaustion and all kinds of things. And so it's a training. How do I show up? How do I meet this? How do I hold this with kind attention? How do I learn from my body? How do I listen? And the more that we develop awareness here, the more that we develop capacity to deal with whatever life circumstance is. And the body doesn't lie, and it also doesn't let us get it, it doesn't let us ignore it. If we do, it usually at our peril. I have a friend who, a friend of the family who was very, very, uh, unaware and unmindful and not wanting to be in his physical experience, and he got an infection in his foot, and he ignored it, got gangrene, and he lost his one leg. Several years later, got an infection in the left foot, ignored it, spread, lost his left leg. Sometimes it takes a lot to wake us up, hopefully a little less than losing our legs, to, to realize this body needs kind attention, presence. Teaches us about transience. Right? This one of the fundamental laws of experience the Buddha spoke so much about. Pay attention to the transient nature of experience because when we do, we don't hold on as much. We relate more wisely. And I've had a catalog of dear friends recently who've had a string of things, but there are quite a few strokes. Um, various heart attacks, this and that. And again, just pointing to the, the the vulnerability of the body and how we meet that. And of course, one of the greatest teachers that the body teaches us is about our own transience, our own impermanence, our own mortality, and how we meet that. 
this, this having dinner with a friend of mine the other day who uh, almost died from a stroke and um, and he's been teaching he's a Dharma teacher, mindfulness teacher and been teaching about death and dying for a long time and um, and and humbled by his own experience. It's one thing to teach about it and to help others in that passage. When it's you, when it's you, <laughs> it's like it's a little more more skin in the game, literally. So this is um, a few words about that. Reflecting on death encourages us to stop taking things for granted, to cease thinking that our relationships and our lives will continue forever. Such reflection is an invitation to be awake for each experience, such as when we say goodbye, really meaning it because we never really know if we'll have the pleasure of someone else's company again. It reminds us to be fully present for each thing we encounter, each sunrise, each scarlet leaf of autumn, each step our child takes. Carlos Castaneda's shamanic guide told him to live with death standing just behind his shoulder as a reminder of the precariousness of this life. Can you live like that? It's life's hardest lesson, but also its greatest invitation. In the poem, When Death Comes, Mary Oliver wrote about confronting our mortality with an open, curious awareness. In it, she describes the potential of living with a full embrace of that innate vulnerability, writing, When it's over, I want to say, All my life I was a bride married to amazement. I think of these inspiring words often. All my life, when it's all, when it's all over, I want to say, I was a bride married to amazement. What would it be like, I wonder, to be so struck by the ephemeral beauty of this world that we wish to marry its wish to marry its fleeting magnificence, to be so welcoming that we scooped it up into our arms like a benevolent groom. In any and every moment we're given just that invitation to behold the unrepeatable, priceless experiences that present themselves each day. To not take for granted that there will always be tomorrow, just like the sunset I was driving on the, was it the 580 or the 80, one of those roads. This is a spectacular sunset. Like, wow, life is amazing. Life is transient and beautiful and precious. And are we present for it? You know, the, what the beauty about these teachings is we actually learn to wake up and we do experience, even in the hardship and the horror, we see, oh, the sun is still setting and casting its scarlet robes all over the sky. And how beautiful. Even with climate crisis. There is still beauty and preciousness here. And so, because of the challenge, the the, um, inevitable challenge of being in this life with a body that changes, it's uncertain, with all the different ways that we might be stressed, have difficulties, have pain. It's essential that our mindfulness practice, our awareness practice, is infused with what? With kindness, with care, with love, with friendliness, with with maitri, as the Buddha said, friendliness. We meet experience with a friendly attitude. We meet each other with a kind presence. We meet our body with a loving awareness, ideally. 
Why? Because one, it's less suffering. Two, it gives us more capacity. And three, what else, what better response could there be to meeting the challenges of our life than with kindness? I have another student from, uh, from, uh, actually from mindfulness teacher training that I also lead. And this was here in Berkeley, uh, Chambala Center. And, um, and he's had long-term, uh, uh, long-term, I'm sure what the word is, um, uh, experience, uh, of, uh, suffering with Parkinson's. And, uh, he's a yoga teacher. And, um, of course, being a yoga teacher and having severe Parkinson's makes that work very difficult. And, um, I'm always moved whenever I'm around him, which I am periodically, how beautifully he meets that with, with real patience. And, and I can tell a real kindness, like a, a gentleness with his body and, and a kind of a quality of forgiving. It's very easy to hate the body when it's in suffering, when it, when we feel like it lets us down, when we get sick, when it has limitations, when it ages. And just think about the ways that you might feel hostile to parts of your body or all of your body. Um, and, and to see him and to see, and he's quite physically challenged at this point. Um, and yet there's a certain kind of kindness and a brightness of spirit that he meets that difficulty. And it's a beautiful teacher to see, oh, even in the midst of that, the suffering isn't in the Parkinson's. The suffering is in the relationship. Right? That's what these, that's how these teachings are liberating. It's not, it's not the thing itself, but it's how we relate to them that determines our well-being on it to some degree. And so to ask for yourself, where, what in your life or in your experience or in your body or in your relationship, what is being asked to be met with a kinder attention, with a warmer, friendly presence? Probably a lot of things. Like even right in this moment, what may be asked, maybe your heart's hurting with feeling deficient or lonely or sad or grief or distress about the world, or politics, or the climate crisis. How do you hold that turbulence, that uncertainty? Or maybe you just feel a generalized anxiety, generalized sort of dis-ease. I went through a period of very intense anxiety some years ago, um, triggered by some early trauma, and, um, and, and it went on for months, this very, very gripped state of anxiety. And I tried to meditate it away. I tried all my tricks to get rid of it, all my spiritual bypass tricks. None of it worked. And at some point, I was like, okay, I guess I have to feel it. I have to be with it. And what, what transformed it was, was really softening into it, softening in my body, learning to hold it with kind attention like this scared little child that that I kind of was inside and just and, and love that with warmth with care 
And then, and then from that, from that holding kind presence, it didn't matter whether the anxiety stayed or left. Of course, I preferred that it would leave, but but if it didn't, it was okay because it was being held, and the holding, the loving holding, in a way, was holding myself. And just, and I just had that sort of reflection that, as well as holding oneself, the holding itself sort of is a bigger holding of oneself, even though we're holding this sort of small self. So this is the gift of when we bring in warmth, kindness. I'm going to read another story that that, share, that speaks to this a little bit. So this is um, a student um, uh, who's, who's well, I'll just read the story. <clears throat> so Anne's husband, Tom, was diagnosed with lung cancer and a massive brain tumor. Tom had surgery to remove the tumor and underwent intense chemotherapy. Though he was miraculously spared from death, he was still he still has cancer and requires routine tests to monitor its growth. And shared with me the anxiety she feels before getting his test results. The sinking feeling in the pit of the stomach, heart racing, gulping in breaths, dizziness, and thinking that I might be losing my mind. Rather than run from these feelings, Anne's been practicing mindfulness, which has helped her cope. As she writes, the feelings still come, but I'm not afraid of them anymore. And she describes the experience of being on the bus with her husband, Tom, going to get the results, which is a very anxiety-provoking situation, as some of you may know. We're on the bus, and Tom interlaces his beautiful, strong hands in mine. I sense the warm in his fingers. I notice all the places where our bodies are touching as we sit side by side. We are hip to hip on this bus journey and always heart to heart. I close my eyes. I breathe deeply into this feeling of connectedness. And then that becomes the emotion, love. The anxiety has subsided and it's been replaced with love. How did that happen? It happened because I leaned into the discomfort. I allowed myself to physically feel it. Not the story, not the catastrophizing and the what-if scenarios, only the feeling. That's the thing with emotions. They must be felt in your body. If you avoid them, numb them, or block them, they don't go away. That clenched stomach, the sweaty armpits, the racing heart, I've learned to embrace them. Stay with it. Don't rush to move on. When negative thoughts try and break in, I gently come back to the body, to the breath, to the feeling itself, not the story. Then there's a shift. There's always a shift. That's how this whole mindfulness thing works. So I love that. that here she is in the midst of a very difficult, anxiety-provoking situation. Right? With uncertainty of whether the tumor's grown or metastasized. And here she is meeting it, leaning into it, literally, physically, emotionally, with her husband. Um, and no doubt, I'm sure, in those moments, that when love is present, then the anxiety and the fear subsides. Then this capacity to be with that experience. So the third domain that we bring uh, awareness to is the mind. And the mind really, and this I think is really the one of the jewels of the Buddha's teaching of, of his incredible laser-like understanding of the mind and its habits and its functions and malfunctions and distortions and misperceptions around self, around reality, around um, all the things that we... There's a line he says, that which we conceive of is ever other than is so. 
that which we conceive of is ever, ever other than is so. We misperceive reality. We believe we're all separate. We believe we're independent. We believe this thing called me is self-existing and real. You know, they have their relative reality, but they're not ultimately who we are. We get to look at our mind with the practice, right? which is kind of humbling and at times scary, at times <laughs> worrying. We see how crazy and busy and distracted and hyperactive and you know, wayward our minds are. And mindfulness gives us the gift of, of, of that awareness to train the mind, to understand the mind and train the mind. Train the mind to establish presence. Train the mind to not be so lost in believing in every thought that comes through your mind. Don't believe your thoughts, says the bumper plate or the the bumper sticker. Mindfulness gives us that space to see, oh, our thoughts are just thinking themselves. They're not mine. They're not me. They're just thoughts arising out of conditions that the brain is very busily producing by the tens of thousands a day. So we get to study the mind, which is mysterious and amazing. I mean, what is a thought? Neuroscience doesn't even know what a thought is. Nor do we, but they're fascinating. And they take our attention a lot in meditation. What is thought? What is the nature of thought? How does it arise? Who is this thought? Maybe my thought is coming from my neighbor's brain, and I'm just picking it up in meditation because I'm sensitive and we're sitting two feet away. Who knows? So with, with awareness, we look at our perceptions, we look at the nature of transience, we look at the, the selfing, in, in neuroscience they call the default mode network, the, the ruminative brain that's always creating stories, narratives, worrying, fear, scenarios. And with awareness we can find clarity, understanding, and, and space and be able to disengage or disidentify and sit back and see the whole show as passing clouds or storms or static. We also get to see the nature of reactivity. We get to see the the hatred and the greed and the tribalism and the racism and the rejection of experience and people and life. We see how all that has seeds in our own mind. How easily we contract. How easily we get caught longing for shiny things for the next peak experience. How we keep rejecting things we don't like, we find unpleasant. And we see how we create this constant contention and turbulence with life in our own minds, which is the same as the turbulence we create in the world. You know, maybe you, you've been sitting in here and you're maybe doing a loving-kindness meditation and you're wishing you know, loving-kindness for all beings everywhere. And, and then someone starts coughing like, I hate that. I spoiled my meditation. Damn it. I'm not going to sit next to that person. Oh, they did it again. Oh. 
Hate that. May all beings be happy. Ah. Except you. Ah. <laughs> we get to see the pettiness. We get to see how easily we get caught in stuff. And of course we have good intentions and good hearts and we get contracted, we get reactive. Or a little twinge in the knee happens and we suddenly we're, oh my God, that's the hate meditation. It's, I'm going to be wheeled out of here in a wheelchair and it's all going to go to hell. And Why am I coming here anyway? Why am I watching Netflix? And we create this whole drama. Self-judgment, doubt. And then with awareness we step back and go, wow, look what happened. I had a little tingling sensation in my knee. I had a catastrophizing thought about this is going to really... You know, ruin my, 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 you know, sports career or whatever. And, and we suddenly start hating meditation and doubting ourselves and judging the teacher and who are all these people. And oh, it's just a tingling sensation in the knee. And then I create this whole world of drama and misery. That's understanding reactivity. The Buddha's Third Noble Truth, freedom from reactivity, freedom from contention with experience and with life. That only happens when we develop a very subtle, acute, moment-to-moment awareness and presence and tracking of our experience, which requires diligence, patience, practice, requires meeting that moment when we get caught, and we go, oh, look at that, I'm... I'm caught in resistance, I'm caught in rejection, I'm caught in aversion, I'm caught in fear. Oh, that's really suffering. I wonder if I can soften, open, release, understand why I'm doing that. Then I can actually take an out breath and do this and go, oh, oh, that, that's, that's workable. That's enjoyable. That's relieving. And we get to see, again, with, when we're meeting that with kindness, how powerful this reactivity is. This, this practice is, is helping us to free ourselves from the reactive grip of the mind. And if this was easy, you know, you'd be done in a few weeks and you can go home and have your, th- whatever night it is, Thursday night to yourself. But it's not. It takes practice. This is from a, f- uh, from a student of mine who's got a three-year-old, Kiko. Kiko's morning me- meltdown today was because he'd made up his mind he wanted syrupy waffles. My no, you can't have them, an offering of oatmeal with honey and a few rainbow sprinkles put on for good measure led to a good 15-minute cry. He was so stuck on the idea of syrup that he couldn't relax enough to hear me explain that he could have a waffle after he ate his oatmeal. He calmed down for a few minutes and looked at the oatmeal just long enough to tell me how it was too bumpy or not bumpy enough. Eventually, he found a book he wanted me to read him at the table and calm down enough to actually enjoy the sprinkles on his oats. While his three-year-old tendency to freak out over whatever it is he wants in that moment can be challenging, thankfully it's matched by his ability to just let go as soon as something else shiny catches his attention. Oh, how we don't grow up much from (laughs) three-year-olds. This oatmeal's too bumpy and lumpy. <laughs> Ooh, shiny object. Ooh, bunnies. <laughs> so lastly, um, in the book, I explore uh, mindfulness in the world. 
how we bring this beautiful jewel of awareness to relationships, to looking at our unconscious biases, to look at our relationship to the climate crisis and nature, to looking at how we move in the world ethically and otherwise. And this is really, this is the lifetime's work. You know, we, we, we sit in meditation in the lab, in the, you know, in the crucible of our meditation experience in order to develop this beautiful jewel so we can practice, uh, in the world. So, um, I'm aware of the time. It's 20 after 9. So, question, and there may be a story or questions. So, question for you, again, just for your own reflection. So, we have all these domains in our life. Mindfulness of body, mindfulness of heart, emotion, mindfulness of mind, mindfulness of the world, or mindfulness of relationships. Where is mindfulness needing to be cultivated for you in your life. Maybe it's around your body. Maybe you've never really, you know, really embraced that practice. Or maybe emotions are really hard, difficult, subtle territory for you. Maybe that's where the practice is needing more exploration. Or maybe the mind and its thoughts and judgments and projections and maybe that's an area that needs more attention. Or maybe in the world of relationship, or dealing with the political uh, situation, or uh, social uh, justice issues, or where where is mindfulness being asked for you to to bring it, to develop, to cultivate it? So I'm going to close with a story. This is um, so I blame my parents, like any good um, psychotherapist, uh, psychotherapist. Um, Psychology, um, what's the word? Um, I just blame my parents for everything, um, including getting me into meditation, which they did. Well, sort of. I mean, they did. Um, it's all their fault. Uh, my, we all went as a family to for TM, Transcendental Meditation, when I was 16. I kind of planted a seed. We all did it for a few months as a family, which was actually very, very sweet. Um, and so, um, so I'm back in England, uh, last year and some full circle. So that was my dad taking me to a meditation class when I was 16. And then, um, many years later, he's 79 now, or he's 80 now, 79 then. And, um, he's, uh, he had a really, really traumatic early childhood during the war. And, um, uh, and this is, this is the full circle of our family in meditation. Which relates to this, to the themes I've been talking about. On a recent trip to England for the Christmas holidays, I had an unusual frank, frank talk with my dad. So what happened? So we were at a Christmas party. It was a difficult situation. He sort of stormed out and then he went to the pub, which is, you know, like therapy in England. And then I thought, oh, I'll go to the therapist too. So I joined him and, uh, we're in a lively English pub full of holiday cheer. And after chanting, after chatting about various things, he began sharing how much pain he still carried inside. My father had a wretched childhood. He was born out of wedlock in 1939, unable to be raised by his mother. He was fostered by a multitude of families until he was seven. He said he lived with so many foster parents that he couldn't even remember the names of the caregivers. After all, after all this happened during the six years of World War II, when England was focused on surviving the war against Germany, and there was little enough attention or time to spare for a little fostered child. As children do, my father internalized his miserable predicament by assuming something must be fundamentally wrong with him. 
He developed scars of unworthiness and shame. This left him hungry for love that he hoped would, ima- would mitigate the whole of deficiency that lived in his heart. Being so young, he had not learned the skills and coping mechanisms needed to deal with such pain. The tragic suffering from those early years remained with him all his life. He'd found many ways to hide it, to ignore it, to drink it away, but like a shadow, it was always close to hand. Now in his latter years, the pain was tugging even more strongly on his heart. He felt a desire for resolution and healing and felt remorse for the ways he'd acted out from the pain, yet he was unsure how to resolve the painful emptiness inside. During our conversation in the pub, my father took the risk to reveal this vulnerable hurting place to me. It was a beautiful moment of intimacy, and I had tears in my eyes. As he talked of the pain he'd held in for so long, I reflected to him from my own struggles that the only way forward is through pain. I also said, look, Dad, I'm in this meditation business. I've been in it a long time. There's a few things I might know that you might find useful. Anyhow, (laughs) there's only so much you can say to Dad. I reminded him that he had had to turn towards that scared, lonely, rejected boy inside and give him the same love that he was clearly able to give to his family, children, and friends. To heal, I suggested he hold his wounded heart with compassion, feel the tender pain, and meet it with kindness and forgiveness. I also offered him resources to begin that work. One suggestion was to do an eight-week mindful self-compassion training developed by Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. Coincidentally, so my dad lives in a tiny village in Hampshire in the middle of nowhere, and unbeknownst to us, that exact class was being offered by a trained mindful self-compassion teacher the following week in a nearby hamlet in southern England. Courageously, my father leapt at the chance and began a profound self-healing journey. Afterwards, he spoke to me of the powerful practice of mindfulness and compassion he learned from the course. He felt less alone. He felt empathy for his fellow participants who were also going through their own difficulties. He understood that healing a lifetime of pain, rejection, and unworthiness would take time, understanding, and patience. But he'd taken the important first steps on that journey. His heart was beautifully tender and open in a way that had never been before. This is the gift of our wounds in which healing them opens up us like opens us up like nothing else can. So I was teaching a retreat in Mexico and he calls me in this was so this that was in December. Starts the course in January. He calls me in March in Mexico. I'm like, Dad, why are you calling me in Mexico? It's really expensive from England. He says, Oh, I just have to tell you, I did that course and I finished it. And it I know I'm just at the beginning, I know it's a long journey, but it was really transformative. And uh, and then I went back in April and we meditated together. And then he went on a retreat in May uh, for a day, and then he did a weekend silent retreat. And it's just been really beautiful. And I really see in his presence how the practices are sort of metabolizing in him, and the way he listens now, the way he the the more the empathy that he has. It's really beautiful, really beautiful. So I share that story as partly just it's I think it's a touching story, but also um, that it's we can. It's never too late. We practice whenever we practice. And transformation can happen when we, when we bring, that, when we integrate the qualities of awareness, kindness, presence to life, to suffering, to each other. So I have run out of time. So um, thank you for your attention. Very, very nice to be here.
So I know we have a couple of things to close. Um, so um, I will do that. Um, I do want to say one one little short plug. So um, I am back here next in Bank back in Berkeley next year. Uh, every two years, I run a, a year-long mindfulness teacher training program, which is partly also what's inspired this book, um, where it's we meet for four four-day uh, weekends over the year. It's a very beautiful profound uh, deep dive into the Dharma, but uh, teaching people to teach mindfulness in uh, in a secular context. So I've got some cards about that. So let's just close with a dedication of merit and some metta. So taking a moment to sense your heart. And sense the goodness of your practice, your good-heartedness, your good intention, your connection to the practice, your wish to grow through the practice. And extending loving-kindness and appreciation for yourself, your body, your heart and mind. Extending a warmth and friendliness to everybody here in this room, known and unknown. May we all be well, healthy, happy, and free. May Thomas, who's struggling with addiction, find peace, find clarity, find support and healing. May all life, all beings everywhere be safe, be healthy, find happiness and peace. May we dedicate the goodness of our time here and our practice together for the welfare and the happiness of all life, all beings and the planet herself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.